I'm Tom Ferguson, and welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. This show explores the intersection of water, technology, and entrepreneurship. Each week, I interview innovators, experts, entrepreneurs, and investors in the world of water, helping us understand where this trillion-dollar industry is headed. These are the stories of the people building the future of the world's most valuable and fundamental resource. Disclaimer. Tom Ferguson is the managing partner of Bird Island Ventures. All opinions expressed by Tom and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Burton Island Ventures. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. You don't often meet someone that you immediately know you'll remember where and when you met them for a very long time. That happened to me with my guest today, Alex Rappaport, CEO of Switico. At a conference in 2018, I was minding my own business when a coiled ball of energy introduced himself to me and it was clear that this was a very talented founder indeed. Alex and his co-founder Chris have made remarkable strides in the last four years and since we invested in April 2021, the pace of development has been remarkable. Alex represents a lot of good things that we look for in founders, but particularly the importance of entrepreneurial process, the thought process that goes into the systematic retirement of risk, the allocation of investment, the sequence of hiring. As an investor, what you're looking for is someone who makes structurally good decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Now, not all of those are going to pan out, of course, but if you have a good decision maker at the heart of a company, it's a great position to be in because at its core, building a company is just an endless sequence of decisions. That's why the person driving the bus matters so much. This episode covers a lot of ground and I think gives good insight as to how he thinks about company building and the development of a complex and highly impactful product. And it's insight that all entrepreneurs can draw on, particularly his observation in the final question about the cadence of learning. So please enjoy my conversation with Alex Rappaport. Alex, a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Marissa, appreciate it. Glad to be here. To start, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. When did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur? When did you know this was your path? So Zwitterco, the company I've been running now for the last five years, is a true technology transfer out of a university setting. We really have followed that path in a pretty sort of typical fashion. So I really got started at Tufts. Um, and even before we were talking about these membranes and water challenges, I was really interested in how can I take an engineering background and work on sustainable technology? How can I apply that to problems that are going to have impact beyond what's right in front of me, but they can address sort of global sustainable issues. So the first moment that I learned was actually a ELS, an Entrepreneurial Leadership Studies course, a 101 class in my sophomore year, where it was the first time I got to actually build a thing rather than just pursuing my curriculum based on problems and textbooks and trying to just sort of learn by studying. It was the first time that the whole purpose of the, of the class was to learn by doing and, and build a thing. So the course was 12 weeks. You're going to come up with your fundamental problem statement. What's your solution? What are you going to solve in the world? And there was actually a budget for all project teams to go through a very early uh, design for manufacturing prototyping uh, exercise so that you could have a physical product at the end of it. What we came up with was one of the stupidest ideas I'm proud to say I've ever had, which was a replacement for cardboard boxes. Could you get to more sustainable packaging, create something that was reusable? Could you actually come up with a latching and flattening design so that you could take a plastic box that could sort of form into a cube shape so that you could use it for containerizing things, but then could lay out flat again and sort of be stacked and be stored. You could ship them off and you no longer have reusable cardboard waste. You have a plastic thing. We made it. So I actually had this like very small replica with a very small latching mechanism. You could fold it up and we had to figure out like, what are the different tolerances of the seams as compared to the flat structures of the box so that you could still have structural integrity, but they could bend out. And I, we actually did this beautiful photography setting of like someone with a little plastic CNC thing in their hands was part of our final presentation. And that sort of creativity, that curiosity of you don't have to wait to go try and solve problems, but the idea that you can identify a need in the world and then go start building towards it, it resonated. I, whether I was 
bored or, or needed better challenge or needed to feel like what I was working on was immediately relevant, only building towards future relevance, I really enjoyed getting the chance to go try and build the thing today. So then out of that class, I led the entrepreneurship undergrad group. And so for about three years, I was getting to know all sorts of student startups, not just at Tufts, but all throughout the Boston um, ecosystem. And there's a ton of really great entrepreneurship programs in the area. So I was building mentors. I would host uh, sort of workshops. I'd host coaching sessions. I'd try connecting student entrepreneurs with prior alumni or folks who had started in companies and had that kind of expertise to bring in. And by the time I had graduated, I had seen probably 200 different companies come and go, a lot of them working on another parking app in Boston or another food truck on campus or an idea that, you know, if you're ever in sort of the student VC circuit, there are definitely some recurring themes. And so I was sort of excited by the process and I had built this large network. I knew a lot of the, the faculty, again, from a couple of different universities, but I had no idea what I could actually come up with that would have any merit. So I like to say I sort of cheated. When I was given a one-year master's program, an opportunity to just work on anything that I wanted, I went to the tech transfer office at Tufts and looked through their list of patents and said, I'm going to work on something that already has some merit, some technology, some research that's gone into it so that I can at least be working off of not a blank canvas, but an existing set of patents and research and, and data that provides evidence of something having value. And my only screening criteria when I was looking through the list of patents was does this do something for the environment? Is there some sustainable basis to why this technology could be valuable? Uh, found membranes for water treatment. They showed some really interesting promise. I had no idea how much promise, but I basically spent my master's program at Tufts flying out to different conferences. I went to the Purdue Water Society conference. I met with the CTO of Suez. My MIT Water Innovation Prize coach was someone from Veolia out in Spain. And so the more I started to workshop this idea, take these patents and build the business case around what this technology could do, I started to receive real market pull. People would say, you could make this thing. I'd replace every ceramic membrane that I have with it. Or if this was real, it would be the first true innovation in membrane space that we've seen in 30 years. And this is an entirely different class of performance. We would find this valuable. So I was enchanted from the time you know, at university, but it wasn't until I had something to go off of before I had enough of a foundation to actually go do customer discovery, go start understanding a market, go start trying to pitch and develop a story about potential future value and start getting feedback from the world. So don't try to come up with it on a blank canvas. That's really hard. Creativity requires constraints. Having no constraints is real tough. Yeah, it really is. It sort of brings back that whole idea that it's much more dangerous to be suffering from indigestion rather than starvation, especially at the beginning. And we fundamentally believe that. <laughs> Whether it's fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of water founders don't have much of a choice in that respect. It's super interesting, the order that you came at it in, because, you know, going to the tech transfer office and flipping through the patents prior to actually validating the demand is usually quite a dangerous way to go. But how did you know that the way that in which you were going to do it was I'm going to go and find the thing and then I'm going to spend some time validating the thing because often that goes really rather wrong. Was that a function just of your experience working with, as you said, 200 early stage ideas? But how do you stay out of that trap, which we usually call PhD-itis, which is we've got a thing and everyone should care and then no one cares. You avoided that really quite successfully. How did that come about? This is where I retroactively claim some brilliance or genius that led me to something that wasn't 100% luck and good timing. So there was data. That's the first one. So there was actual data sets that as I was doing customer discovery, I could put in front of people who understood the relevance of that data and could help put it in terms that helped build application understanding. So I could show them lots of AB style comparisons between the products that had been built at lab scale were very much prototypical, but that were evidence of this new chemistry, this new material for membranes. And I could say, if the product could do this, you know, how can I then think about what we would displace, what's the cost profile of this improved separation? So I could start building a real economic grounding just based off of early preliminary data sets. So I was very fortunate that the lab that had invented this technology had not only isolated the value proposition in synthetic fluids, they'd also taken in 
some live industrial wastewaters and some municipal wastewaters and had done more representative surrogate studies that when I then spoke to the industry, they were more interested in the results than if it was just as you know, a fluid solution that had been produced in a lab and was not represented in the real world. So that's one point, right? Try to make your surrogate evaluations as representative as possible. And the second piece is I went into this without you know, a ton of background about what I thought the water market needed. I really let the data points I would gather from my market research, from feedback from folks that I'd speak with, guide my line of best fit was based on amassing the greatest number of data points that I could on what this would be for, for the market, what this would be compared with other technologies. So it was almost not having any preconceptions of why this should be different, why this should be better, and then trying to go to the market to go validate the thing that I already believed to be true. I didn't know what was true. So I, I truly let the direction of hundreds of discussions be my North Star. And once I started to see patterns, I started to be able to tabulate insight that then became the building blocks of the company. But that insight was based on a pretty genuinely, there was no motivation that I was trying to, again, to, to sort of validate an assumption I already believed. I, I went to the market with a pretty blank slate and said, what do we think about what this is? And I was lucky enough to get a ton of very senior, well-experienced individuals helping me think through that strategy really early. And that, that helped us avoid a lot of places I'm sure we could have tried to take that technology that, that wouldn't have been discovered for such an important idea. When we think about this, and you're always the archetype that we use when we're talking to LPs and other people about like almost the second category of founders that we look for is the people who have done the work. And it sounds ridiculously obvious, right? But the effort that you've just described, the best way I can put it is that you really made sure that there was as little a gap between the actual functional reality of the market that you were going into and the reality that you perceive. The first group that we're usually looking at and in your, your kind of compatriots in, in BIV is the people who have excruciating founder market fit and just know this stuff upside down and back to front and just have all of the data to hand so they couldn't build a product that no one wanted, even if they tried. And I've got to say, yours is a lot tougher and the process that you went through really is kind of exemplary. So some people listening to this are going to be like, cool, yeah, membranes. Can we go into what? Exactly that is. So let's wind it all the way up to the top. Like, what is it that you're building? Why is it different? And if you can go a little bit into the kind of the platform logic and what's coming down the pipe, hopefully, that would be really, really helpful just to set the kind of physical context of what you're building. Easiest analogy most people will be familiar with in regards to membranes is a coffee filter. It is a semi-permeable barrier that allows certain things to pass through, often by a size exclusion mechanism, right? Can it fit inside the pores or not? In a coffee filter, you would retain coffee grounds and you would pass water and the soluble species that come out of coffee grounds that making the flavor and that, right? So when you think about membranes, now you're looking at tuning that pore size or tuning some of those separation mechanisms down to extremely fine, extremely precise qualities. So we can look at from the membrane separation spectrum all the way down to ionic separations, like what reverse osmosis does for seawater desalination up through nanofiltration for hardness removal, for a lot of surface water treatments. If you're looking at ultrafiltration, now you're into protein separations, sort of dissolved species, but dissolved macro structures into microfiltration where you're doing more like suspension or emulsion separation. So a coffee filter is sort of the right framing or mechanism, but membranes in an industrial context can be really finely tuned on their pore sizes, they may be very finely tuned to endure different kinds of industrial environments, right? You might use membranes for chemical separations where they're operating at crazy pH levels and with lots of mixed solvent systems, or you might use them in water where you're basically filtering out water and things you might get from the ocean. So what we do, what we make is a class of membranes that is using a new polymer, so a new thermoplastic. Most polymeric membranes today are made from a couple classes of chemistry that have been in service. 40 years at this point, and they do a great job. But the most common limitation in any filtration product is that it clogs, right? Filters clog. And you're looking at end of life, you're looking at operability, you're looking at how easy is it to recover, clean, maintain performance based on the rate of clogging, or how readily the material degrades based on how you clean it to try and recover performance. So those are sort of the two end of life or, or total cost of ownership criteria. How long does it last? 
How well does it stand up to cleaning as you try to recover it? And for the most part, membranes have not been able to be operated in environments that have a lot of organic components. So if you've got fats, oils, greases, proteins, a lot of the byproducts that show up in food manufacturing or in agricultural waste streams or in industrial chemical waste streams, those organic species are some of the worst offenders for clogging membranes. And because of that, most membrane operations either need really extensive pretreatment. So now you're talking about multiple different unit operations, all associated with removing from the water the thing that the membrane can't handle, or you just don't see membranes at all. And this is where Zwitterco starts to really show an opportunity to expand markets to help accelerate the transition to more advanced forms of treatment, because those spaces today that can't use membranes, can't use a lot of technologies that are well understood, are still using some pretty archaic practices. They're still hauling waste away by truck, they're still land applying waste and just trying to stay within sort of discharge limits. Or they might be using really expensive chemical or biological processes where a membrane could do the job. And so long as that membrane didn't die, it could do so very affordably and actually sometimes create value out of that waste stream. So now our platform, sort of innovation here that does this market expansion is that our membranes don't fall. They're immune to fouling. And that immunity is based on a material that has never been used in membranes before that you sort of think of it like a nonstick cookware. The organic species that normally lead to adherence or that get stuck within the core matrix of membranes, it just doesn't happen with our product. We can typically take five to six orders of magnitude higher organic loading than would void the warranty of a off-the-shelf polymeric product. And we can filter those kinds of fluids with all of that crazy, nasty organic stuff in there. And then you can clean the membrane with a, a water rinse or a very, very mild chemical wash and you will fully recover performance. Now your membrane's just back to brand new. It's running for years at a time instead of needing what could be weekly or monthly replacement, which is rarely ever economical. Seriously exciting. So one of the stories that we tell all the time about what we mean by entrepreneurial process focuses around your first deployment. Do you want to walk us through that, that story? If I must. <laughs> it's my favorite. In the world of smelly, nasty wastewaters. I have yet in four years, five years to find something that bested grease trap wastewater. And grease trap wastewater is what you get out of cafeterias, hospitals, a lot of restaurants where all the stuff that goes down the drain, all that brown grease, yellow grease, you're scraping off, comes off the, the cooking sheets. You know, that all ends up in a waste stream. It usually ends up in a box. It's called a grease trap collection box. And folks will come around with trucks and they will suck out all of that grease trap waste and they'll bring it to centralized facilities. And a lot of times there's really been a push to upcycle that. Right? Can you turn the yellow grease, can you turn the brown grease into biodiesel feedstocks or renewable oils? So do something with what's in that because it has their high caloric value or the opportunity to just directly offset other fuel feedstocks. So we had looked at grease trap wastewater after some of the big visible forks and spoons and, and crusties, you know, all of that stuff comes out. You're still left with this really saturated emulsion. And they were looking for something that could further dewater it. Because if you could dewater it, you could take 90% of the trucks off the road because all the trucks care about is moving organic material. But if it's a very dilute organic solution and you concentrate it, then you have only that amount of volume itself to be trucked away, the clean water could be disposed of or reused. That was the pitch. And the goal was take 90% of the trucks off the road, all the operating cost, pays for all of the you know, upfront treatment, you know, you're, you're golden. And we were golden, and we even had a customer that was ready to start piloting, but we had perhaps uh, gotten a little out over our skis by not doing some of the fundamental work of go look at the damn site and go look at the damn water and figure out what exactly it is before you start pitching how on paper all of this product market fit is going to work. So we sourced some of our first fluid solutions into what was only a, a garage-sized lab at the time, and I remembered the sinking feeling of well, this is going to be a problem when the fluid showed up in a Home Depot bucket with no labeling. And then we opened the Home Depot bucket and it wasn't liquid. It was a congealed solid where at room temperature, there's no fluidized anything. So you could take a spoon and a divot out of it. The spoon divot would, would stay there. So you can imagine you know, Zutico works with filtration down to the nanoscale. We remove anything larger than about one nanometer out of fluid, which means proteins, peptides, oligosaccharides. You're not removing visible things. So trying to force solid material through a nano filter is not really the right use for that tool. And it only worked if you heated the fluid up to much, much higher temperatures, which was outside the spec of our technology. So it was just 
it was a good example of, okay, the sales process, the, the customer discovery process has to truly be discovery. And you got to know your checklist. You got to know all the things that are going to tell you about value driving opportunities. And we took that example and said, okay, we've got a list of all these markets, we've got an even bigger list of all potential customers. And we got to start coming up with a process that just routinely brings fluid into the lab. Bring the fluid in, screen the fluid, figure out if you performed a meaningful separation, figure out if the academic sort of on paper value proposition can be at least represented in a week long you know, bench scale study before you go into piloting so that you can really think about conserving resources to different stages of commercial representativeness, right? A quick and dirty bench study should take you two to three weeks and cost you very little. And it would be much better to not waste limited piloting resources, which are very expensive, require assets and team to go do stuff on site. Having the bench testing as part of our first pass review of applications feels super obvious now, but it wasn't the way that we had realized our process needed to unfold when we first got started. That helped us move from initial market exploration into a rapid customer discovery phase where we built a whole bunch of bench test assets and started sourcing several samples a week from different customers. And we were really churning through that data. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot more about what worked, didn't work. And it was just, how could you accelerate that learning cycle? You know, when you're going through that learning process, it's amazing how much you sort of have to discard operationally that actually on a process basis, right, in terms of, uh, you know, you understanding more about your product, you never discard. It's really genuinely understanding the value of the process that you're going through and that you want to keep going through it as you do more market exploration. It kind of makes me think about your deployer as you look at it now. So, I mean, it's not as early as it was. You guys are in a really kind of interesting position, but like, how does a sale work for you? Like, give us an insight into what your customers kind of need to believe. What are the preconditions you look for? Like, what does it take to kind of get to yes for the people you're selling to? Absolutely. And this is one of the challenges of anyone operating in the water space. You hear the term, it's a fragmented market, or every water is different, or everyone in the same industry believes their water is different. And there's there's really some truth to that. And part of why that's a relevant condition in your sales exploration is you might have the perfect process on paper that says you use this technology at this step, integrate it in with this complete solution, and it should work for this opportunity, you know nine times out of 10. And this is the value proposition. Take over the market. Off you go. And the site-by-site characteristics really make a difference, right? Someone's permit in one geography may be totally different from someone else. So the need to get to a certain quality treatment can be very different. The floor space they have, some folks are in the middle of an inner city, and it's a completely different, you know, you're building up if you're going to build at all, as opposed to just price of land and the price of floor space is nothing if you're in the middle of a rural area. They might have existing infrastructure you can slot yourself into or that you can leverage or that you have to convince them they should stop using and you have to then go into the sunk cost discussion. So it is definitely most helpful in sales processes to, for an industry, for a new application, come up with one or more base templates and try to make those as standard as possible, almost distilling them down to their fundamental building blocks. Something that is doing the bulk solids removal, something that's doing the dissolved organic something that's doing polishing for water reuse if you're trying to get to potable quality, something that's going to take all of the retained organic material and dry it so that it can be sold as a, as a product, as a, as a fertilizer, as a feedstock. And when you have those buckets of potential applications or functional technologies that you need to get to the complete solution, then you go from this, how can we simplify, simplify, simplify to the most repeatable process map that we can consider and then you've got to completely orient your thinking to be as adaptable as possible to the realities of all the site-to-site and geographical nuances and say, all right, well, given that this is sort of the template that we should work on, now for this site, you have to still go through a bit of a reality check and process reorganization to say, okay, their actual needs are this. And our goal is always minimize the amount of cost in wastewater, process intensification. How can you do more with fewer unit operations? So where can we leverage what they already have? Or they're not trying to reuse their water, at least today. How can we consider less intense solution that could open the door to future reuse as more of their internal stakeholders start prioritizing further? So you have to try to focus on a limited number of markets where you know the technology. If you're a component supplier, like we are, how it fits in to enable the most efficient, the lowest cost, greatest opportunity to maximize reuse or co-productization, whatever your value 
driver is. First, understand the box that you fit in that helps make that process possible. And then how do you build a really scrappy sales organization that can run rapid site-by-site discovery process and work with partners who also have within their DNA the ability to work on not just mature technologies, but new processes and understand what's involved in validating assumptions around new processes. And you really have to think of new projects coming into your pipeline as what's the decision tree? Okay, looks like it's going to have, these are the key value drivers. That means this template solution is going to make the most sense. So we're going to talk about these kinds of needed operations. We know that this partner is the one who provides RO the best. This is going to be a project we work on with this group. Okay, go. Our applications team, their applications team, let's get to a pilot plan as fast as possible. And let's make sure that we can communicate the value proposition that the end customer actually believes in. You know, if it comes in with a different set of drivers, this one already has a complete process train already installed. And what they're looking for is a little bit of reduction of chemical here. How can we really reduce scope and say, all you need is this? And it sort of takes that as core template exercise. And then again, just sort of connecting it to reality as fast as possible and trying to be adaptable to what is every product is a new project. So how do you think about adapting that to the kind of the demands of, of scale? We'll get onto your fundraising story and the way in which you think about it, but you have an opportunity here for a really kind of considerable company. But what you've described, I think, would probably, you know, fill some of the members of the funding environment with a certain amount of dread because it's, you know, this is tricky, tricky stuff. I think that's more on them than it's on you, to be honest. But so how do you think about the demands of being able to kind of get big quickly? Are you talking about the being governed more by the unit economics or is this a process optimization? How are you thinking about ripping the time out of the process? One of the things that is true, I think, in a lot of the entrepreneurial process is when you aren't fully sure about something at first, do it manually. Part of the way I would characterize the sales process that I just described is about as manually intensive of a sale as possible. And as you get better and better, as you see more patterns emerge, you'll find places in the process that can be automated, places in the process that can be outsourced. You'll find different ways to leverage other folks in the value chain. So right now, Zwickerco is intentionally, because we care so deeply about understanding how our product works, we know the learning internally, that we're close to the market and close to how these products develop, that we're putting a lot of our resources into sort of a project-by-project approach. The goal is absolutely to transition to the point where a lot of that initial decision tree can be something you can do through simulation software, or that you can at least have guidelines that not only have you built, but you've also built to be replicable for your commercial partners, so that when other people are trying to investigate applications to use the technology, they're working off the same set of tools that we would use to very quickly sort of identify, qualify, triage, and then convert to, all right, this is the design path you want to go down, and you can do so with a couple of clicks of a button. So that whole initial decision-making process when you have a better library of case studies and potential templates, when you've got more partners that are familiar with how the technology works, that space can be condensed very quickly into a, just a series of logic tools that here are the inputs from the site. Here's what we understand about the cost structures and the different treatment objectives that will be required, sort of spit out the design. And now you're already into the working with the customer on does this design work for them selling phase and not on all this sort of re-engineering work that goes in. So that's sort of point number one. Point number two is we see our technology as it's very new in terms of what the performance is, but it is still a membrane. That's what membranes do. And there's a lot of people in the world who integrate membrane systems, who think about how do I attack new markets with membrane-based technologies. So what we believe is that this technology should be integratable by anyone. This is not something where you have to come up with a ton of custom hardware and a lot of totally reformed thinking that only a few potential channel partners are going to be able to get on board with. There's a very healthy sort of position in the value chain where folks who take existing or or new technologies, integrate them into new solutions, do the design work, do the fabrication, do the project delivery and ongoing service. That's their core business model. And they're looking for ways to bring new technologies into the market so they can have a leg up, so they can achieve some strategic growth objective. And where a component supplier like Switterco is going to be able to really start leveraging scale is that if the world sells in a project-by-project based business, you could unlock or mobilize dozens of potential channel partners to all be working with your technology in 
the you know, specific beachhead or the process that that they've helped develop, you don't have to have your growth be linear with the number of projects, be linear with the number of partners. And partners can end up having their own sales forces and their own new continuous improvement of the process. They can start having many repeat sales coming from folks that aren't necessarily under the umbrella of the sort of team. And we've already seen this work for a couple of channel partners that we started working with last year. They've sold dozens of commercial projects off of just a couple initial pilots. And this is where I would get to the third point of many water companies when trying to introduce new technologies have to go through the sort of one pilot per project pathway, which is long. It takes a lot of time and has a lot of costs associated with it. Your goal is, of course, to reduce the necessary amount of pilot qualifications from a timing perspective, but also looking for those anchor channel partners or those anchor key accounts that have lots of different sites and lots of different potential applications of the technology where you do a couple pilots or, or different exercises of technology to get them familiar with it. But at that point, you're then allowing them to almost pull you into all the next places they want the technology to go. So we have a couple, can't name the names, but we have a couple really key accounts right now that their goal is, we've done it here once as a case study with this site. We want to standardize it over in the next 28 plants. And at that point, if you're doing any further demonstrations, it's just trying to think about the differences of one site to the next. You're not sort of reimagining the whole process and the whole value proposition all over again. They've seen it once and it ideally should be working and commercially viable at their anchor site. And now it's more of an expansion opportunity. That'll still take, you know, three to five years, but if you've got 20 of those lined up, that actually starts compounding very quickly. So it's how do you create more efficient simulations of the upfront discovery work so you can start getting to high priority accounts quickly? How can you get army of channel partners mobilized that all can use the technology and all have you know, case studies or example processes where they've taken the technology, seen how much better it can be for them. And now they're training their sales team that whenever they go out into the market, they're looking for opportunities where this can be one of the default tools, the default arrows in their quiver. They would go launch a solution to a certain space. And where can you identify opportunities for upsell, cross-sell, expansion sell from key accounts that one pilot can turn into multiple commercial that makes a lot of sense. And so to execute all of this, you've obviously got to have the right team in place. And like, no offense, but you are really insultingly young. Um, but you've really built an extraordinary team of, I mean, the way I was talking about this last week, of, of people that probably should know better. You've got a lot of people with a lot of dirt under their fingernails within the, with real history in the membrane environment. I'm just curious as to what was your thought process? How did you think about hiring through each stage? How are you hiring? Uh, how are you thinking about hiring and now? And then we'll just sort of move into your relationship with your CTO, Chris Drover, because I think it's one of these really interesting examples of kind of key relationships working right. But why don't you start with the hiring, the way in which you think about the hiring issue? I think it starts with a know thyself. Know what you bring to the table, know what you're good at, know what you would need to your skill set and complement what the business needs. And one of the things I knew about myself going into this was I did not have decades of experience. I did not have the heuristics that I could draw on. I did not have the rules of thumb. I did not have the whatever the dirt under the fingernails example you need. So when I thought about what I was looking for, what role I could play to both make my team successful and how I could build relationships, especially with my really senior, well-experienced members of the executive team, the goal was I can be a very effective communicator and spokesperson. I can help bring the story to the outside world. I can help bring engagement in. Really love talking about Twitter Co. I have a really good sort of track record at this point of having people get really excited about what we're doing and want to get involved. So I have a external facing megaphone to the world. I am responsible, of course, for making sure the business has the resources it needs to execute on that plan. So my job is to make sure that I can fund all of the exciting vision and projects that the brilliant minds that have joined the team, they can come up with. And that my job then is to be almost an internal project manager, a glue, a stickiness, an agent of culture, an agent of the vision of what we want to accomplish so that when we have brilliance coming from Peter and Gara, from Chris Drover, from John Goodman, and they're trying to take their experience and mold it into a way that it's going to be most constructive for the business, I can at least be the one making sure it's all going in the same direction. 
And that's really the role that I play with my executive team. I don't tell them how to do their jobs for them. That would be silly. I don't have that experience. They're the ones who you know, hired them because of what they can bring, the outside content they can bring up to the company. So I try to make sure that, and this is probably true, not just of, of the really senior team members, but we try to make this culture sort of push this down throughout the entire organization. That this is true, that when we give people accountability, we give people responsibility to take, you know, take ownership over something the company needs, they actually get that ownership. And I, I step back, I'm not going to get in their way. I am an enabler. I'm sort of a supporting individual that gives them the direction, gives them resources, and gives them the mandate, go be creative. Go take all of the frustration that you had in your last position where you worked in a big company, had no ability to actually try new things, iterate, be creative, have that sort of more entrepreneurial mindset. And then say, not only are you able to do that here, that's not the expectation. You know, if you don't have opinions, that's a problem. If you don't show me some broad vision that you have for where this could go, then we're going to have to work together on how we can come up with what needs to be done. But I always love empowering my team to use their creativity and to feel like they own the work they're doing and they own a piece of the story. That's actually a really core value at the company is that we seek to have everybody act like an owner because both legally, spiritually, you know, emotionally, it's true. We all have the responsibility and the accountability to help sort of reach its potential. And everyone's actually expected to operate that way and to care deeply about their work and their contribution. So, so far, I think the experience, I think a lot of my more senior members of my team have felt is it's a bit of a breath of fresh air, knowing that someone actually trusts them and is giving them a real runway to go try and build their dreams and use their experience for something productive. And it's been such a helpful, healthy way for me to learn coming into this sort of as a blank canvas and letting all of these really experienced you know, senior folks help create this beautiful canvas of, of what our strategy is. So I, if there's an axis that I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall on for how much it is the, you know, the Alex Rappaport show, it's not. I'm here because I've got a great team and they work really hard. It's a great answer. So, I mean, obviously the oldest partnership within this company has been that with your CTO, Chris. And, you know, often these relationships can be kind of pretty fraught, but I think what you guys clearly have is a really healthy and kind of productive dynamic. And it always really has been that case. I mean, when you reflect on it, like, what do you think the kind of the extrapolation should be from people from the outside looking in? When you have a co-founder, you're going to really build the respect. If you're going to build a relationship. If you're going to build the way that you have difficult conversations, the way that you problem solve together, the way that you disagree. If you're going to really treat that individual like a co-founder, the magic moments happen. When you go to sleep at night, you don't have to worry about the thing that you know they're worrying about because they're going to be better at solving it than you are. They're going to be worrying about it and spending all of their anxiety thinking about how they can attack that problem, push that ball uphill. And because you have that freedom to not focus on that piece of it, you get to instead focus on your responsibilities, the thing that you've raised your hands. So I'm going to be the one that everyone can count on to get this piece done. And I think it sort of comes back to that, you know, how are our team? How do we let everyone feel like they own a piece of the puzzle? I learned that working with Chris. I learned very early on in sort of coming that for me to be most effective in my role, I had to let go of a ton of scope within the organization because Chris could manage it better than I could. He's a genius. Most people who've ever met him are pretty quickly enthralled by how quickly he can come up with just amazingly creative solutions to problems. And he has a background of very strong emotional leadership very high EQ, very clear sense of operating priorities. So he brings a ton to the table. And where I could focus more on commercial, fundraising, sort of team building, cultural aspects, I knew that the technology, our core operations, and a lot of the firefighting that happens, which try to scale lab scale technology to something that was now using at real manufacturing volumes, all of that was Chris all day long. I was there to support him. I was there when he needed to vent. I was there when there was something that we needed to work through a, a triage or a prioritization exercise, but the level of and the depth of trust that has been built, I've come to know what things he's really good at and where he falls short and where he struggles and very much likewise in reverse. It was that moment of, I'm not just delegating this, I'm so thoroughly, completely trusting that this individual can do this job and I'm not going to worry about it. And it frees me up really go deep and focus on the place that I need to spend my time. I need to make progress. And it's just 
how you run a really lean organization. So you have everyone maximizing their specialty and not needing to be as involved in everything so that you are as optimally positioned throughout the threads the company needs to uh, work on as possible. Well, speaking of the zone of genius, I guess, and at the very least the zones of responsibility, <laughs> the fundraising side of things, you know, we've, you know, no announcements yet, but there's some sort of interesting news forthcoming. And I think there's a certain amount of fundraising that is already kind of out there in the public and you're clearly good at it. How do you think about those particular arguments? Well, frankly, that particular sales process, because what you did at your Series A, I mean, a lot of people who are, have been in this game for a really long time, when they passed, they sort of sent me emails saying, where on earth did you dig up this guy? And I'm like, I didn't. He was just lying around in Boston. Oh, it's not. He wasn't lying around anywhere. But you really did have an exceptional process. How did you think about it? There's a process, right? A fundraise is a sale. And if you're in the business of building a company or in the business of sales, you could just shell your team members when you're trying to recruit new folks, you can sell customers, you can sell partners, you can sell investors. It's all a sell. And so if you try to apply your traditional sales methodology, you should come up with a funnel, a list of targets, and a, you know, a messaging framework that is your key value and the value that you're selling to an investor. You just have to really be able to connect that to what investors care about, the return that they're interested in, the impact story that they're looking for, stage of technology or stage of maturity of the company that gives them the right feeling that they're in at the risk profile that they're comfortable with. So all of that is knowing your customer, penetrating the account. How do you build a couple different ways into the organization? Have your advisors who can give backdoor references about the credibility of, of the company. You have customers that will stand up and talk about what they've seen using the product. And you try to build as carefully crafted of a story that's going to show them not just the answer to every question they have, but also communicate that information in so clear and so streamlined of a process that it's also evidence of how you think, how well-organized you are and how crisp your strategy is. So there's sort of a bunch of tactical things in, in that. How many firms you bring in the pipeline, how many meetings you're having a week, how often is it with the person who is a direct opportunity to be a funding partner versus someone who is an influencer versus someone who's just a coach who's going to review your material and make it better because it's never great when you put it together the first time. All that said, and so you go through the phases, and if you've been through an equity raise you know, a couple of times, you know the phases. There's, there's the dating period. There's the, okay, maybe this is getting serious. We're reviewing financial models. We're actually talking about numbers. Handshake on valuation. Try to, at least in my world, I tried to make the data room review as much of a just evidence, sort of checking the boxes so that all the sale had happened before the data room because you could really help manage the urgency of that process because they already wanted to make the investment before they went in. They were just looking for validation at that point. So there's different ways to structure the, the different chapters. Now I would say take all of that and completely throw it out the window because I don't think it's what matters. Much like a sale, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is the relationship you have with your company. And if I went through my fundraising processes. I've gone through four now. I would say there were times that I got really excited because I had a lot of flurry of activity going back and forth. I was answering follow-up diligence questions. They brought 10 people onto that call. It seemed like they were really engaged. The call went long. And the level of activity actually really was the wrong thing to index on. Or even how frequent or how many engagements you had. Those are all good signals. But there were times that I was much farther along in the process than I realized, and other times where I thought I was doing better with a potential funding partner and, and I wasn't. And the variable that really mattered is, do you have an individual you're working with who you trust and who trusts you, that you know who they are as a person, they know who you are as a person, that you have a relationship with them that doesn't feel like it needs to be qualified with, oh, it's a business relationship or it's a commercial relationship. It's just a relationship. It's a person in your life who adds value and for whom you're excited about the vision of the future that you could collaborate on together. You know, most of the sales that we've made at Twitterco are based on, we went through a complete sales process and there's you know, things we're trying to replicate and trying to make go faster and trying to train other people on how to do. But at the end of the day, the sales that we've made are sales where I knew the person that I was working with and I knew what they cared about. I knew what they were looking for out of me. I knew what their expectations were. I knew what we were supposed to be able to offer to help them accomplish their dreams. And we could have very earnest conversations, difficult conversations. And that made, you know, for the group that, that finally invested, the level of trust that they had that we were 
really genuine in the story that we had put together, genuine in our passion and interest in what we were working on, how real market opportunity was based on what we'd been able to see, that trust started with a one-on-one relationship. And then again, you sort of get to the data room and all they're doing is just making sure that all the pieces that I mentioned in a prior conversation were actually there. You know, my advice to any sort of future folks going to fundraising is, yes, you are supposed to keep a pulse with this big cohort of potential investors that you can keep the relationship warm and do the monthly newsletter and get coffee with them every once in a while, make sure they hear about you and make sure that you're not getting forgotten falling off the radar. But if you don't have two or three relationships going into a fundraising process where you like them, you're really excited, you care about their feedback, you think they're brilliant, you think that when you show them material, there's just that chemistry, that meeting of minds, like, no, we can see how the work we'd have together get us to a better joint outcome. If that's not there, I would worry that you're not focusing enough on the relationships and you're focusing on this being too much of a transactional process. They'll tell you it's transactional. It's not. Excellent. So we're just going to change gears because we're coming to the end of our time together. The first last thing that I want to ask you is to do with what I'm going to start referring to as the 1% problem. $50 billion went into climate tech in 2021 and somewhere south of 500 million of that went into water. Now, water is not 1% of the climate change problem. For some reason, there is a disconnect between this trillion dollar market that we find ourselves existing in and the understanding of the ocean of capital that's out there to help us mitigate and adapt the climate crisis. What is it that you think that people out there should be most excited about in terms of the commercial prospects of the water industry at the moment? Still, the thing that you should be most excited about from a commercial standpoint and the most sad about from a humanity standpoint. Problems are not subtle anymore. The problems are getting really severe and they're really close to home, no matter where your home is. What I think is probably going to be true of water in a way that is really orthogonal to the way that a lot of digital IoT software based companies think about their growth story is that it's very like, if you can do it here, it should work for all population on a global scale. And as long as you focus your market on potential users, there's sort of like a limitless opportunity for it to be relevant. Water is very localized right now. It really has to be, how can you solve a series of problems for industries that likely have hotspots in certain regions or that can address emerging challenges that are not necessarily going to be true just because there are humans living in a certain place. The existence of sustainable water infrastructure is something that is, there's a wide discrepancy between the best and the worst of what's out there. And I think that requires you to have pretty specific domain expertise, specific sort of geographical focus to some of your commercial strategies. So I think it does require entrepreneurs to talk about their story in a different way. You're talking about solving problems that might feel like the TAM isn't just some impossibly large number that you can come up with a back of the envelope calculation for. And it's true because we took this one microcosm and we expanded it a thousand fold to the whole world. You really have to think about a couple choice locations of the technology that build an enduring stickiness that you won't get in other industries because water is a fundamental requirement that, that we make available to the world and is never going away. There's almost a, you probably want to focus on more focused sort of either geographical or isolated level problems, but you have the confidence of if you can solve them, you're going to be the sticky solution that will never go or that there's going to be continual opportunities to expand off of that first set of beachheads or launching points because these problems are accelerating way faster than the pace of technology right now. So the goal is be a part of the tide that is coming in, because if you can land in a couple of places where company or the technology is starting to show traction in a couple opportunities, even if the market today isn't a venture style outcome, it will be soon. And it's going to be the people who endure, who manage to get their technology validated, build processes inside their organizations where they can innovate at a pace that starts to match the new opportunities that they can find. I think there's going to be a lot more scrappiness to that process, but I think there's no possible way to say these problems aren't real and growing and very severe. And that's true in a way that it's never been true before. So I think the other sort of risk aversion that there aren't a ton of comps of successful companies that have done this tremendous acceleration cycle, well, they're never going to market timing like this. So we're about to see that wave play out. I'm glad to say Zwitterco is at least 
part of that first curl. You know, well, we're already landing in a couple spots and it's going to be a fun game of timing. I couldn't agree more. So we come to our closing question, Alex, which is you sending the elevator back down to the next generation. So what is one lesson from your experience with Switico? And I know there have been a bunch, but you only get to choose one that you would pass on to the new emerging group of water entrepreneurs who are following hot on your footsteps. Reduce your learning cycle to as short and as thoughtfully designed of experiments as possible. You're going to be in a business with long sales cycles, with a lot of risk, with a lot of aversion to new technology. You're going to be building things that cost a lot of money. You're going to be having to work with a value chain that has lots of different stakeholders and everything is going to be against you on time. So find ways to answer the next most salient question that's going to help drive your strategy or validate your technology or validate your market and do so in the shortest possible learning cycles possible and get your whole organization thinking about what can we do in one week, one month, this half of the year. And you've got to be structuring those experiments so that when you complete that exercise, you actually learn something because the wasted time can kill you. The like pilot that you ran that just wasn't designed thoughtfully and realized that you didn't actually get out of it a data, a data set that helps you design the commercial scale installation because you didn't really think about the design of experiments quite the right way. And so you sort of did a whole bunch of on-site tinkering and it didn't actually help you solve the thing that you needed to actually get to that next step. That hurts when you find this out what a great place to end i couldn't agree with you more the shortening of that cycle and the steepening of that curve is yeah we see it over and over again alex thank you so much for your time congratulations to you chris and all the team for what you're building at Twitterco. it's a real kind of honor to be a pretty infinitesimally small part of it but it's been a real kind of honor to learn from you over the last couple of years and thank you for coming on the fundamental molecule appreciate it thanks tom thanks marissa talk to everyone soon bye guys